This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. So, let's begin. Moshe Rabbeinu received the Torah from Hashem after saying over the Sarah's Dibros, Moshe Rabbeinu went up for 40 days and Hashem taught him the entire Torah and then Moshe was supposed to come down with the Luchos as a formal bris between the Jewish nation and Hashem. However, there was some confusion when exactly was Moshe Rabbeinu supposed to come down, 40 days, complete days, not complete days. And at some point, there was a tremendous tumult in the classroom. The sun made it dark, showed an aron, showed a casket of Moshe Rabbeinu, saying Moshe had died. And we know the entire event. That is when the Jewish people made the golden calf. And whatever that means, at some to some extent, at least 3,000 people worshipped it, were involved in it. And this is the hate that we still pay for, so to speak, in our gullus now, thousands of years later. But when Moshe Beno does come down, he breaks the luchos and he says to Kalei you've done wrong, chatatim, chatas gedola. And he says, I'm going to go up to Hashem and I'm going to see if I can beg Hashem for forgiveness. And the Pesach says, V'yasha Moshe l'Hashem, Moshe returned to Hashem, V'yomer, Ana chata amazeh chata gedola. It is true, this nation sinned a great sin. V'yasulem elohei zav, they made gods of gold. Now Hashem, if you'll forgive them, imtisa chatasem, please forgive them. If not, wipe me out from the Sefer. Barashi explains that what Moshe Rabbeinu was not just playing hardball with Hashem. It wasn't just that he was saying that wipe me out from the Sefer Torah, count me out as the one to be the transmitter of Torah. He actually said something even more potentially offensive to Hashem. Says Rashi, Hashem, you are the cause. The reason why they serve the golden calf is because of you. Sheshpatlam Zav. You gave them gold, and everything they wanted. When the Jewish nation left Mitzrayim, they left with tremendous ashiras, tremendous, tremendous wealth. Moshe Rabbeinu pointed a finger at Hashem and, Hashem and said, Hashem, it's your fault that they serve this Egel Azov. Why? Because you gave them tremendous wealth. And then Rashi goes on to give us a mushal. Imagine a king who gave his son food, beverage, anointed him, got him all dressed up, put a purse of gold around his neck on a string, and put him on the Pesach Bezazonas, put him on the doorstep of the house of ill repute. Obviously the son is going to sin. Hashem, that is what you did. You gave them gold, you gave them wealth, and you caused this, Hashem, you have to forgive them. Okay, now, clearly, this was a very brave move on Moshe Rabbeinu's part. And the reality is he saved the Klai Yisrael. And in fact, the Gemara tells us that Hashem agreed. Hashem agreed to Moshe because the Pesach says, Kesev Hashem agreed, Moshe, you're right. I gave them too much gold. I was the cause and Hashem forgave them. Now, if you think about this Rashi, I believe it's very, very difficult to understand. I get it that a manhig will go way, way beyond the normal bounds to save the nation. I understand why he'll take a strong position, but the claim is very difficult to understand. Hashem, you caused it. Why? Because you gave them great wealth. 
How does great wealth lead to Avodah Okay, they're left with tremendous Ashiras, and tremendous, tremendous wealth. How does that lead one to serve idols? But even more than that, let's understand who we're talking about here. This is the Dordea. Every Jew there heard Hashem say the words, Anochi Hashem Lakecha. The Shemayim opened up, and every Jew there experienced Hashem with full faculties. They reached a level of Nevuah that very, very few Nevim ever reached. They got it. They understood it. And with a tremendous clarity of understanding, they now lived in the Midbar under the conditions of a Kolel environment. What were they involved in the whole time? Basically, for the 40 years, the Klai were involved in Limina Torah, and the bones were supposed to be soaked in with Torah. They were the ultimate Kolel society. Now, I understand why gold might lure us. Great wealth is shiny, it's glittery, and it looks appealing. But you're talking about the Dordea. These were people who have tremendous spiritual development. And they saw Hashem, they experienced Hashem, they cut through the haze of physicality because Hashem revealed Himself to them. How did they fall for gold to be something alluring and appealing? They had much greater values, a much greater currency, and they understood we're here for a few short years. But if that doesn't bother you, here's a much more penetrating element of this question. What would they do with the gold? They're living in the Midbar. There's no buying and selling. There's no commerce. The most they could do is occasionally on the outskirts, there might be Midjonim of different nations, might sell them things, but they didn't buy real estate. They didn't buy property. What were they going to do with this great wealth? Yet Rashi says, and Moshe made a point to the finger to Hashem and said, Hashem, you are the cause of it because you gave them great wealth. Question number one is, how does great wealth affect these people? These people are on the highest madrega, and they should not be lured by it. And question number two is, how is this going to lead them to Varazara, where it leads them to create a golden calve? It's very difficult to understand. And to really put this into perspective, I believe we need to focus on this concept of money in general, and particularly what we know as the love of money. A fellow once said to me the following, he said, you know, you look like a million bucks. I said, oh, thank you very much. He said, yeah, all green and crumply. If you think about it, money is not particularly beautiful, not particularly alluring. If you pull out a $100 bill, it's green, it's crumply. And yet there's an incredible impact that money has on everyone. And the of Office explains that really it's irrational. He explains that there's a love of gold in man's heart that makes no sense. All currencies ultimately were, at least once were, based on gold. Even now that recently Western civilization has shifted off of it. But gold was the essence of all currency. And the Chovaz of Office makes an observation. He says the love of gold is irrational. You can't do much with gold. It's shiny metal. It's soft. It's not very useful. You can't eat it. You can't wear it. You can't plow your field with it. You can't cut down trees with it. What good is it? And explains the Chovos of Ovos, this is one of the chesodim that Hashem bestowed on mankind. You see, if I have a hundred piles of wood and you have a sheep, it's very difficult to negotiate a sale. It's very difficult for me to sell a table for your wheat. To have a currency that allows for commerce 
you need to have something that's considered very valuable, and that very valuable item can be that which you exchange for. But there's nothing that intuitively, instinctively should be valuable. Hashem put an irrational love of gold into man's heart so that there could be commerce. Once you have an object that's pretty rare and everyone considers it valuable, now you have a standard against which to measure. A hundred piles of wood is equal to this much gold. This much gold is equal to this much in sheep. Now we have a standard of measure and we can have a currency. We can have an economy. Now trade can continue. And if you think about it, all trade was based on gold. And again, even today's economies have their basis in this. And this is one of the chasadim that Hashem did to, to mankind. Hashem put an irrational love of gold into man's heart. And it's not just gold, but now it's money. The largest bill that the U.S. Treasury prints is a $100,000 bill. I want you to imagine for a minute, and a man comes into your room, carrying an attaché case, he opens the attaché case, and you see stacks and stacks of $100,000 bills. Each stack has $100,000, $100,000 bills, and he puts one into your hand and says, I want you to hold this for a minute. If you were to hold this in your hand for a minute, it's not your money. You can't do anything with it, but I guarantee your blood pressure would rise $10 million. Oh, my God, that's $10 million in my hand. Oh, my God. And look at that, at the shake case. There's stacks and stacks. It would have a palpable effect on you because money is very, very valuable. My son, when he was a little guy, used to love counting sadaka money. He didn't. It wasn't his money. He wasn't keeping the money. But money is fun to count because money has a value and money has a certain pull. And I believe that's the answer to the first question, how the Dordea could be affected by it. They were B'nai Olam Haba. They saw Olam Haba as clear as anyone today ever can and to a much greater extent. And they understood the value of a minute and understood what they're here to accomplish. Nevertheless, gold had a very real pull. And even though they couldn't do much with it, even though they were in the Midbar, nevertheless, gold was very valuable. Gold was very important because Hashem put this irrational love of gold into our heart. And again, the reason for it is because it allows for all commerce. It allows for everything to continue in mankind. However, while that answers one question, how the Dordea could love gold, it doesn't answer at all how they came to Varazara. So let's understand, let's assume that there still is an irrational love of gold in their heart. And let's say it's true. Even though they know the ultimate value system and they recognize that they can't take it with them, but nevertheless, it affects their blood pressure as it would affect ours holding a large pile of gold. And therefore, it affected them. How did it lead to Avodah Zarah? How did Moshe Benes turn to Hashem and said, you caused it. You caused them to, to build this Egel Azov. You did it because you gave them gold it still doesn't answer that question. And to answer that question, I'd like to share with you three cultural beliefs about money. And as we debunk each of these cultural beliefs, I think we'll learn a very important lesson. And the first of the three cultural beliefs is that more money equals more happiness. Now, you and I may say it's not true. You and I may say, come on, more money does not mean more happiness. But there is a deep-rooted cultural belief 
that money makes you happy. More money makes you happier. More money than that makes you even happier. And if you have an awful lot of money, surely I will be happy. Okay, so let's deal with that first of the three cultural beliefs. And let's assume that money makes you happy. Here's the problem. There are two very important lottery statistics that demonstrate something about this fact. Lottery statistic number one, major lottery winners. Now, these are major lottery winners means they've won over $100 million. That means enough money that they don't have to ever work again. Here's what they found. Of the major lottery winners, 80% were back at work within one year, often at the same job that they had left. Now, that doesn't make much sense. I won it big, $100 million. Why are you going back to work? Imagine we have Joe, the UPS driver, right? He dresses in brown. He's got brown socks, brown pants, brown cap, and brown shirt, all day long driving that brown truck. And every day as he picks up packages and puts packages down, one dollar and a dream. If I win the big one, you're not going to see my face around here anymore. And one day I'm going to strike it big. One day I'm going to get rich. One day I strike it rich. He buys his lottery ticket and he wins. A hundred million dollars. Wow. And he's back at work. Back in the same brown pants, same brown socks, same brown shirt, driving the same brown truck a year later. What's pshat? Why? And the answer is that when he won the money, it was great. It was ecstatic. It was unbelievable. And he began doing what anyone would do with that kind of money. He took vacations. He went here. He went there. He bought a BMW and every flavor in the rainbow. He went bungee jumping off the Eiffel Tower. He did everything he could. And after a few months, he found himself bored. And after eight months, he found himself lackadaisical. And within one year, he's back behind the wheel of the truck. And he made that big discovery that money doesn't buy happiness. Money can relieve some issues. It can relieve some problems. It can certainly pay debts, but it doesn't make you happy. But if that statistic doesn't really make the point, let's look at another one. They compared two groups of people, major lottery winners and paraplegics. These are paraplegics who had lost two limbs that year, within one year's time. So they took a group of people who had won a major lottery within a year, and they took a group of people who had become paraplegics a year after. And they compared the happiness level of each. And here's what they discovered. In terms of satisfaction in life, in terms of happiness, there was no significant difference between the group who had won major lottery winnings and the group who had lost two limbs within that year. The only significant difference was the paraplegics expressed more joy in day-to-day activities than did the major lottery winners. Now, that makes no sense. How could it be? Rahman, you're in a wheelchair. You, you lost everything. Life is terrible now. What? And the answer is, when you begin to understand the human, you begin to recognize that, guess what? Money doesn't buy happiness. Again, money can buy lots of things, but it doesn't buy happiness. But nevertheless, there is this deep-rooted cultural belief that it will. And it's very interesting to note, because if you compare one generation to another, it's very difficult to determine real happiness. But Richard Orlstein is an economic historian with the University of Southern California, and he did just that. He did an intergenerational survey to study happiness. Now, here's what he found. 
today we earn on average 50% more than people did 50 years ago. As a matter of fact, far more than that. The economy has doubled, and the average person today is earning at least double what people did 50, 60, and certainly 70 years ago. But not just earning double. When you factor in inflation, we have more consumable dollars, meaning to say there's more money for cars, more money for refrigerators, larger homes. And here's what he found. Even though we have a tremendous abundance, when you compare our generation to that of 60, 70 years ago, we have an abundance that they could not even imagine. There is no distinction in the reported level of happiness. And while it's true that everyone likes to say money can't buy happiness, nevertheless, it seems to still be there. It still seems to be a sense in there. And guess what? It doesn't hold true. They do, in the paradox of choice, he compares different nations. Poles are much happier than Hungarians, even though they have the same level of wealth. People in Poland are about as happy as people in Japan, even though people in Japan have about 10 times the wealth that do people in Poland. And what they do when they compare society to society, nation to nation, generation to generation, there's only one significant improvement. If you go from subsistence level, if you can't afford to pay your bills and you can pay your bills, yes, that makes a tremendous difference. But once you hit subsistence, there seems to be no appreciable difference in happiness, no matter how much money you make, even if it's in the millions, the hundreds of millions, even if you hit the super rich, and all you got to do is read People magazine and you'll see a group of famous rich people who are miserable. So even though it's true that I grew up, and I don't want to date myself around here, folks, but when I was a kid, Fiddler on the Roof, there was that song, If I Were a Rich Man, wouldn't I? They're going to laugh me out of here. But uh, but back in the day, that was the line. If I were a rich man, I wouldn't have to work much. All day long, I died. If I were a wealthy man. And that cultural belief is false. It's debunked. It's just not true. And it's important to focus on and understand, because while we may say it's not true, it's still part of the culture, and it seeps in and infects our way of thinking. But let's deal with cultural myth number two. Uh, A number of years ago, I was in the bank, and when I opened an account, the teller asked me uh, if I wanted overdraft protection. I said, that sounds like a good idea. And so she asked me, am I still at the same address? Yes. Uh, and uh, is that uh, uh, what type of how much overdraft uh, checking you're looking for? I set a number. And then she asked me, and uh, what is your net worth? And that question stopped me. What is my net worth? As in, what am I worth? What is a human being worth? Now, <clears throat> this was uh, a bank, and I'm socially attuned to the reality. So I answered the question in accordance to how she meant it. I said, you you mean my financial net worth? And I gave her a number and we went on. But that question struck me because when people ask, what is your net worth? The second cultural belief is your net worth equals your self-worth. And what your bank statement shows, what your portfolio shows is your value. 
I'm a rich guy. I'm an important person. I'm a poor guy. I'm not an important person. And this is a second cultural belief that seeps into our thinking and becomes part of our perspective where my self-worth equals my net worth. And this is very sad because from a Torah perspective, there is no value on a human life. The entire world, Hashem says, I created Adam Arishan alone. Why? So that every human being should know it was worthy to create the cosmos, the ocean, the sun, the stars, the moon, everything for one man. Adam Arishan was one man. Hashem created a complete world with one human being to teach us all a lesson, and that is that Hashem felt it's worthy and appropriate to create an entire world for one man. And then the mission Sanhedrin goes on to say, Chayav Adam Lomar, and a person is obligated to say, Nivra Olam. Adam was one man, and I too am a man. And it was worthy for Hashem to have created the entire world for me. The net worth of planet Earth for me and me alone. And when you believe that your self-worth is your net worth, you're devaluing the human being to such an extent that it's hard to believe. And yet, even though we all pay lip service to the fact that this is a myth and it's not true, I'm sorry to say we all fall prey to it. Just watch what happens when a guy walks into shul and somebody whispers, I heard he's worth $100 million. Whoa, $100 million. Wow. Wow, he's rich. Whoa. And suddenly people speak to him differently. And suddenly people act differently around him because he's a rich guy. He's an important person. They have to treat him with due respect. The Chovos of Ovos explains to us that there are three reasons why Hashem will grant wealth to a person. Hashem will grant wealth to a person either as a bracha, a nesayan, or a klala. And he explains you could see, based on what the person does with that wealth, why it was granted to him. If it's a bracha, you could look at what he's doing and know immediately he was given a blessing. If he gets more involved in learning, in davening, in cloud work, if he focuses far more on the world to come than this world, you're looking at a person who's given a bracha. If he doesn't get into the materialism, he doesn't become arrogant, but rather the opposite. He understands that he was given a gift from God to use, and he uses his time very, very guardedly, very carefully, you're looking at a man who received a tremendous bracha. If a man acquires great wealth and becomes very busy, and now my portfolio and my business, and have to be, and he gets himself more and more involved in it, you're looking at a man facing a great life test. Because one of the most difficult life tests is wealth. And if he gets preoccupied with the money, the business, whatever that brings, you're looking at a man who's living with a life test called wealth. But there's also a reality that a person can be given wealth as a klola. If you see a man who gets into materialism, he becomes full of himself and full of this world and stops learning, stops dominating, stops, stops being an Eved Hashem. You're looking at a man who's eating his world to come in this world. You see, there are some people who may have done great things. And then because of what they did, they deserve to be up there in the front row in Ganadin. But Hashem feels that they're not really worthy of that. And therefore Hashem will pay them back much of their world to come in this world in an extremely devalued manner. Because all the wealth in this world doesn't begin to begin begin to be an inkling of anything of importance in the world to come. 
but that man might well be eating his world to come in his world, and you're looking at a man who's cursed. And it's a funny thing when a person becomes rich, and that is, and begins changing him. And I'll make it very simple. Imagine I build a business. It's an Amazon business, and it goes to seven figures, eight figures, and before you know it, it's growing and growing and growing, and I sell my business for $250 million. Whoa, amazing. I don't have to work a day in my life again. And I'm a little bit changed. You know, I, I used to look just like you. I used to think just like you, but I'm a little different now. I'm a, I'm a rich guy. I'm no longer an average citizen. I speak differently. I drive different cars. I wear different kind of clothing because, after all, I'm no longer plain, pushed a regular guy. I'm a rich guy. And my self-definition starts changing. I become the rich man. I become powerful. And I have that very, very dangerous sense of independence. I don't need anyone. I don't need the rabbi. I don't need my wife. I don't don't need my kids. I don't need God. I could buy and sell the city. Money is a tremendous nesayon. And because with great wealth comes a sense of independence. And I believe that's the answer to the second question. The Dordea, as much as they understood the world to come, and as much as they saw Hashem right there, were very, very wealthy. And on some level, it gave them that sense of independence. We don't need Hashem. We're not dependent on Hashem. I've got wealth. I'm rich. And that sense of independence breaks the bond to Hashem and can lead to anything, including Avodah Zarah. If you want to know how the Dordea could be influenced by money when they had nothing to do with money, and they were the Kolo Society, there's an innate love that Hashem put for money in man, and it doesn't matter your Madrega, it still will influence you. And if you want to know how they came to Varazara, and that is the power of wealth. And wealth can be a bracha, it can be an asayan, or it can be a klala. It's a curse if it starts changing you. If I become a different sort of person, I become a little bit more important than you, a little bit above you, and the worst of it, when I become independent, I no longer need anyone, I don't even need Hashem, and the Dordea can come to what is earth through it, because that is the danger of wealth. And we've dealt with two of the cultural myths. The first of the cultural myths is that more money means more happiness, and it's certainly not true. The second cultural myth is that my net worth equals my self-worth. And now we're ready for the third of the cultural myths. The third cultural myth is that the big spender is the rich man. It's the guy who drives a fancy car. And the guy who wears a $20,000 watch. And the guy who lives in a palatial manner. Obviously, he's the rich guy because he's the big spender. And the big spender is the rich guy. And I'd like to share with you that that is a myth. But not only is it a myth, it's quite the opposite. Because you see, there's only one way to become rich. And that's by not spending money. And there's one quick way to become poor. And that's by spending money. In fact, there's only one assured way to become wealthy. And that is to earn more money than you spend. And the guaranteed way to become poor is to spend more than you earn. 
but we become so accustomed to seeing the big spender and saying, oh, he must be rich, and that we assume he's rich. But when you look at a person who spends a lot of money, you're looking at a person who spends a lot of money. <clears throat> Whether he's rich or not, I don't know. I happen to know a lot of people who spend a lot of money <clears throat> and they don't have much money at all. But let me make it more clear. Let's take two guys. <clears throat> One guy has a good job, honest businessman, does well. He makes, after taxes, $150,000 a year. Certainly not a gvir and not an usher, but he's able to pay his bills. Okay. And we got guy two. And <clears throat> guy two has a very successful business. And after taxes, he makes $750,000 a year. Who's richer? Now, you don't have to be a mathematician to realize that seven fifty a year is a lot more money than one fifty a year. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that guy two is rich and guy two just isn't. Until you make the following observation. Guy one lives a very simple lifestyle. And he puts $20,000 a year into savings. And after 20 years, he has a million dollars that he put away, plus compounded earnings. He has at least $2 million free and clear in the bank. Guy two, on the other hand, while it's true that he was earning after taxes $750 million a year, he lived in a very expensive house. He was paying $50,000 a year in taxes and bought custom suits, drove the fanciest car you could imagine, and put away zero in the bank. As a matter of fact, he now finds himself 20 years later, his house is older, the cars are gone, the suits are long worn out, and he's in debt. So who's the rich man? If you tell me that the man who's earning $750, but he spent so much, look at the bar mitzvah he made, look at the house he lived in, that's very nice. You prove to me that he's a big spender. But the big spender doesn't mean he's a rich man. And the reason why this is important is because we have to get our priorities straight. There's a tremendous lure to spend money. And there's a tremendous emphasis on materialism in the society we live in. And that's assuming that you don't go on Facebook and Instagram and get constantly bombarded by everyone's opulence and lifestyle. Assuming you don't even do that, the simple reality is that there is a lot of wealth today, Baruch Hashem, and there's a tremendous emphasis and a tremendous pressure on spending. And when you understand these three cultural myths and understand that they are exactly that, myths, you begin to straighten out your thinking. Myth number one, money does not buy happiness. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't happen. It's true that to earn enough money to pay your bills is a very good position to be in. But beyond that, money does not buy happiness, no matter how much money, no matter how much. Myth number two, your net worth equals your self-worth. Your self-worth is thousands and thousands and thousands of times larger than any amount of money you could earn. And anyone who defines his self-worth based on his bank book is selling himself short to an extent that's hard to imagine. But you have to focus on that. You have to think about that. Because when you dwell on that, you're able to cut through the fog and you're able to ignore the lure of being rich, of making it rich. And the third of the cultural beliefs is that the big spender is the rich man. I, I want to be rich. I want to be rich. And therefore, I have to buy the expensive house and buy the expensive watch, drive the expensive car, make the fancy bar mitzvah, 
make the large wedding. And guess what? And what I'm doing is becoming poor because there's only one guaranteed way to become poor, and that's to spend more than you earn. And to make this clear, I want to just really, I don't know why I have to do this, but I'm going to do this. Let's assume that you're still bought into the cultural myth. The big spender is the rich guy. Let's imagine you have the opportunity to buy a new car. Now, I drive a Toyota Camry. Many a day I've been stuck on the West Side Highway in traffic, and I see very fancy vehicles passing by. But the interesting part is that they get stuck in traffic the same way that I get stuck in traffic. And I do spend some time looking out at the cars next to me because I often find myself stopped. And I find it rather curious that oftentimes people drive cars like me, and oftentimes people drive cars that are very, very expensive. Now, I challenge you to find me the difference in quality between a Toyota Camry and a BMW Series 7. I challenge you to explain to me that the ride is so much smoother, the brake responsiveness is so much greater. So let me be very blunt. I was once on the highway, and apparently I trained my son to notice very expensive cars and to recognize the folly of it. And one day, we were somewhere in Manhattan, and it happened. That moment, a Bentley pulled up to us. Now, Bentley is not an expensive car. Bentley is a house. It's at least $350,000. But this was not a Bentley. It was a custom Bentley. It was a stretch Bentley. Now, it happens to be that probably the ugliest car in existence is a Bentley. And all you got to do to make it uglier is to stretch it. But that wasn't enough. It wasn't just that it was ugly and they stretched it out to look abnormal. It was painted salmon, the color of locks. And my son turns to me and says, do you see that? And I looked and I said, oh, my goodness. Someone is paying an awful lot of money to impress us, but he's not doing a very good job. But this is the point. People spend an awesome amount of money And it's folly and foolish. But if you want to understand why it's folly and foolish, let's look at my Toyota Camry versus a BMW 7 Series. Okay. Now, I know the BMW comes with turbocharged engine, comfort system, responsive handling, and experience unlike any other. But it drives the same way I do. I know that the BMW Series 7 goes from 0 to 60 in 5.4 seconds. In my entire life, I've never needed to go from zero to 60 in under 10 seconds. And I've never driven on an open highway at 185 miles an hour. I get stuck in traffic the same way the BMW 7 Series gets stuck in traffic. But let's look at the key distinction. Let's say we're going to buy a new vehicle. I'm going to buy a Toyota Camry, brand new. Brand new, and I'm going to spend $25,000. Okay, And my friend next to me is going to buy himself a BMW 7 Series, and he's going to spend $150,000. Now, his car responds the same way mine does, and drives the same way I do. You have to put gas in it the same way I do. His his expenses are a lot greater because when he has a repair, it's a triple the cost of mine. But that's not the real problem. The real problem is that when you buy a brand-new car for $150,000, You're going to keep it for two years, three years, and you're going to sell it. And here's the great secret. The car depreciates. But I want you to listen to the depreciation rate. 
If you buy a brand new BMW 7 Series for $157,000 and sell it three years later, it will depreciate $65,000. And that means it costs you to own that car besides running of it and besides insurance, besides the aggravation of someone touched the car, someone scratched it, it cost you $65,000. Now, let's do the math. $65,000 divided by three, $21,500 a year. Per week, it costs you to own that car $416. Per day, $60. That means every day that it sits in your driveway costs you 60 bucks. Shabbos, 60 bucks gone. Go for a two-week vacation, oh my goodness, $800, $1,000. Go away for the summer. Who could afford the $3,000? It's a ticking time bomb. It's withering away every single day, every single hour at $2.50. Who could afford it? But it's so gorgeous. When you get into the car, it, it, it drives just like my Toyota Camry. And this is the great secret. It's alluring. It's appealing. But it provides nothing. It doesn't make you happy. And doesn't do anything other than say, I spent money. I spent money. The $20,000 Rolex says, I spent money. The custom home says, I spent money. It doesn't bring you happiness and doesn't increase your self-worth. doesn't help your children be better, wholesome children. And at the end of the day, it brings you nothing. And the reason why I stress this is because there's such an emphasis on the expensive bar mitzvahs, the expensive weddings. I know a man who dropped $100,000 on his son's bar mitzvah. $100,000. You'll say he was wealthy. And connected that, he gave that amount of money to Stucker. Now, that's very nice. But a few years later, he died. And I want to ask you this question. In Shemayim, is he glad that he invested $100,000 so there could be flowers flown in from Holland that morning? Is he glad that he spent that money on the invitations made of leather? I don't think so. But you see, unless you think it through, you get pulled into it, you don't think about it, you don't realize, and in a very short time, you ruin your life. I think this Chazal teaches us a tremendous lesson. The Dordea were the ultimate Kolo community. They heard Hashem say, Anochi Hashem Al-Kecha. And nevertheless, gold affected them. Why did gold affect them? Because simply, Hashem put a love of gold in our heart. That's how economies run. The Chavaz of Ovas explains that's how all systems of currency run. And there has to be a substance that's the center of it. And that's ultimately for our benefit. But you also have to recognize that it's a natural pull. Even if you're on the highest madrega, it looks alluring, it looks appealing, and it can fool you. But the bigger danger of money is when you acquire it. When you acquire some money and you become the rich man, and suddenly you're a different person. The Chavos tells us there are three reasons. Money can be a tremendous bracha, but that's only if you use it appropriately. If you become more dedicated to Avodos Hashem, you become more of a community person, you're more into learning, more into dominating, more into serving Hashem as you should, then it's a bracha. If you become more and more busy with your money, it's an assignment, it's a test. And ultimately, if you become involved in materialism, if you become involved in your sense of self that's now increased because of your wealth, you're looking at a man who's cursed. He's eating his world to come in this world. And the worst part of that curse is a sense of independence. I need no one. 
I don't need my kids. I don't need my wife. I don't need God. The Dordea, as great as they were, as much as they saw Hashem, had a sense of independence. They were very, very wealthy. And that wealth gave them a sense of, we're no longer poor people. We don't really need Hashem as much. And even though it might have been small, that was enough to lead them to Varazara. And these are the three cultural beliefs that we seem to seep into our, into our blood. More money does not equal more happiness. My self-worth is not tied to my net worth. And number three, the big spender is the big spender. It doesn't mean he's wealthy. It just means he spends more, but nothing else. And I'd like to close with one story that I think so well defines this concept. The story is told that one time the Chavetz Chaim <clears throat> reached for a safer, And next to that safer, he saw another safer. He pulled that other safer out. And he said, Oi, Oi, I bought the safer. I bought the safer and I never learned it. Oi. And someone saw the Chavetz Chaim and said, Okay, we should have bought a safer that he didn't use. But why, <clears throat> why does that cause such sar? I said, how did I buy the safer? The only way I buy a safer is with money. The only way I get money is with time. I sell my time for money, and I use that money to buy the safer. But it was a terrible investment of time because I didn't learn from the safer. That means I wasted my time. That is a man who understood money. Money is a currency to accomplish with, but it comes at a very great expense, the greatest expense of any. And that's my time. I have a few short years on this planet. I was commissioned with the job of growing, accomplishing, doing great things. And every second that I have has to be invested wisely. I have to earn a living. Earn a living is something that's my responsibility as a householder, as a father. I get it. But that's a responsibility that has to be very, very carefully measured. Every moment has to be weighed. Every moment has to be carefully guarded. And what I buy with my time is money. And when I have that money, what I spend it on ultimately is my time. And if I squander it, if I waste it on things that are frivolous and silly, I'm wasting one thing, my time, my essence, who I am. And I think that story well defines the concept, and I think it's a tremendous lesson. And now I'd like to open the floor to questions. Please feel free to raise your hand. Uh, If you're a little shy, you could certainly type them in. But um, I would, uh, I'm certainly appreciative of people raise their hands. It makes it easier uh, on me. Um, so please feel free to, it could be a question on this topic or any other topic. Um, and I'm going to take one that was written in. The question is as follows. I understand that money doesn't bring happiness, but what if some, someone simply likes and appreciates nicer things? They enjoy fine clothing, nice dishes, traveling, etc. And they're read a shit of someone who has no money at all and comes from an extremely simple epitome of yeshiva home, and he wants to stay learning. Should a girl who doesn't come from big money either, but was still brought up in a Baalbatish home, and likes nice things, and are used to nicer things, does this play a factor when it comes to Shaduchim? Okay, that's a very good question. Um, so <clears throat> there's, here's the following problem. You have to have a plan, and <clears throat> certainly when you're going out, you have to have a plan that makes sense. And that means if you need uh, a certain lifestyle and the fellow you're going to marry isn't able to support that lifestyle, then you're going to have a problem. And I can't advocate for a girl to go out. If you like nicer things and you read a shidduch with a guy who doesn't have a means of support and he's prepared to live very simply so he can learn, that's great and holy, but I see a potential pretty big problem coming down the pike. And that is 
you guys are going to find yourself in a very difficult place. Now, I want you to know something. Not everybody that you marry, when you marry, remain at that level. Now, meaning to say, if you marry a guy who doesn't have a lot of money, you never know. He could earn a fortune. He could earn very little at all. But one thing for sure, if he's going to, if his plan is to learn for a good number of years in Colo, and you don't have a means of support, and he doesn't have a means of support, you don't have much of a plan to be able to support your lifestyle. So I would say that sounds like it's not a good shidduch at all. And I would caution you to avoid it because at the end of the day, if you're going to be resentful, if you're going to be miserable, you're not going to be a very good wife. So I would caution you to look on and find someone who fits your basic needs. I mean, to say it doesn't have to be somebody wealthy and it doesn't have to be, true, but it's got to be someone. There has to be, my Rebbe Doshiva Zatzal used to say, there has to be a plan. The plan doesn't have to be foolproof and it doesn't have to be perfect, but there's got to be a basic plan. If the basic plan is there, you move forward. Here it sounds like there isn't a basic plan, so I guess my answer would be I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't say so. Um, okay. Apparently, they call the fact that a lot of women in paraplegic adjusting to the situation, hedonic adaptation. Okay. Um, there's a simple reality that whatever situation we're put in as human beings, we get comfortable with. And then we reach a certain status quo of happiness. Meaning if a person has, let's call it, let's call it 75% on a happiness scale. If that's what you're holding. So you're subjected to different things in life. After a while, what new situation you put into, you find yourself coming back to that level. So these paraplegics were on a certain level of happiness and they lost their legs. Obviously, initially they were quite miserable and quite upset. But after a while, you adjust, you get used to it and you find yourself coming back to that equilibrium and whatever level they were on before they had that trauma, they find themselves pretty much on afterwards. And, uh, yeah, that's a nice expression, hedonic adaptation. I don't know what it means, but it sounds like it fits the bill. So we'll assume it defines it well. Um, okay, Avram Scheinberg, you have a question? Let's hear it. You have the floor. Good evening, Rebbe. Hi. Um, it's not so much of a question. I just wanted to mention I, I was thinking of Rebbe tonight. I was dealing with um, with taxes, and then they tell me how much I would owe for taxes, and I just throw a ready. Uh, there's a schmooze about not take uh, only if it's legal loopholes and versus non legal loopholes and that kind right. of thing. And I just was singing a ready. I just wanted to. Yeah, I was singing a okay. tonight when I was dealing with it. Good, excellent. Okay, and let me tell you the big rule. <clears throat> the rule is when Hashem determines how much money you're going to make on Rosh Hashanah, is that before taxes? Or after taxes. So let's imagine for a minute. Shem says, you're going to make a million dollars this year. But you're going to pay taxes? Forget about it. Uh, no way. Count it out. I'm only giving you this money if you're going to lie, steal, and cheat. Somehow, I don't think so. Hashem is fully aware of federal, state, and local tax code. And Hashem knows exactly what you're supposed to pay. And Hashem determines how much money you're going to make, assuming that you're honest and ethical. And that means exactly as I said, if there's a legal loophole, take it, grab it. You're not supposed to pay more taxes than you have to. But if you're obligated by the law to pay this amount of taxes, you have to pay it as a firm Jew, because that's Emuna. Emuna says that I believe that Hashem determines how much money I'm going to make. But that means Hashem determines how much money I'm going to make, assuming that I'm honest and ethical. Hashem does, doesn't give me like a lot of money, but oh, you're a fool, you're paying taxes, forget it, stealing, taking all the money back from you. I mean, Hashem determines how much money I'm going to make this year, 50000 500000 5 million, whatever the number is, assuming that I'm an honest, ethical person, I pay the taxes I'm obligated to pay, I don't pull shtick, I don't pull drays, 
and that's the amount of money. So the great test to be tochen is when you sign that tax form that says, I hereby declare, de- declare that everything above is true to the best of my knowledge. That's the ultimate test of Muna. Why? <clears throat> because that shows whether you really believe that Hashem determines how much money you're going to make or not. But okay, Ashrecha, good. I'm glad you remembered, and uh, and I uh, hope you have a good uh, tax preparer, because again, you got to use every legal loophole that you can. And by the way, it is very important to remember that, because, you know, the, it can make a tremendous difference um, how much money you, you pay. Again, you're obligated to pay how much you're obligated to pay, but more than that, certainly, you're certainly not obligated to, and it's not wise. And Edward, Grace Atzadi, we haven't heard from you in a long time. Shalom Aleichem, how are we doing? Grace Atzadi, I think you have the floor. You're supposed to have the floor. You do. Edward, you with us? Edward, one second, why it says uh, your mic is muted. Edward, it's on your side, awesome. not on mine. Yeah. Shalom Aleichem, hi. Yes, hi. Long time no see. Yes, I was busy yeah. with my those. You were busy what? Yeah. I'm not hearing yeah. you. Say again? I'm not hearing you. Say it again. Hi, Edward, we have a terrible connection. I'm not hearing you. <laughs> I haven't... Oh, and now we lost you. All right. Anyway, please feel free to type in questions. If you have not been getting the Shmooz uh, WhatsApp Chizuk group, if you're not a member of that, <clears throat> please look on the Shmooz.com. Three, four times a week, we send out very inspirational short videos that are two, three minutes long. We also send out the replays of the Derek Hashem Share Wednesday night and the Shmooz Live. If you go to the Shmooz.com, you'll see on the top, you click the banner to join and it'll put you into the Shmuz WhatsApp Chizit group. Again, you'll get the short videos three, four times a week, and you get all the replays. Also, if you've not gotten a chance to get your copy yet of the 10 really dumb mistakes that very small couples make, I highly recommend the book. Chazay Hashem, it sold already 7,000 copies in the Sarm stores, and it's uh, it's well on its way to becoming a bestseller. Mitz Hashem, I received rave reviews about it. So if you'd like to get a copy, you can go to your local Sarm store, you can go to Amazon, but if you get your copy on the shoes.com, additionally to the hardcover book with free shipping, you'll also get the audiobook, the ebook, as well as the marriage transformation boot camp as a free bonus. So if you go to the shoes.com, T H E S H M U Z.com, you'll see on the top of banner to purchase a 10 really dumb mistake. And again, it's available in stores or on Amazon. But if you buy on the shoes.com, you'll get the audiobook the ebook, as well as the Marriage Transformation Bootcamp as a free bonus. I thank you very much. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.